0: We had the guns elevated on a platform above the wall and so you can bore sight and you just look through the barrel at what you're trying to hit and you're firing line of sight. So it's just like a very big rifle at that stage. We were taking IED strikes and we did try to go out within 30 metres of the wall. So people would crawl up under the cover of dust storms and lay IEDs basically under our watch positions. When you come back from that, Absolute heightened intensity where every sensor in your body is alert. It feels like you've been staring at the sun and you come back to normal life, and everything is just a sort of pale imitation of the real deal. I spoke to Fee maybe once a fortnight, once every three weeks, because it felt like that was there and I'm here. And the more I am in that world, the less I am focused on this world. And this world is survival.
1: Hello everyone, this is Maz. So today I'm releasing a conversation with a good friend of mine, Robert Hartley. Given the topic of this discussion and its potential importance to many veterans and their families, I'm releasing the full episode on the public channel. As you will hear, Rob goes into much detail about his combat experience while serving in Helmand Province in Afghanistan back in 2010. Rob, who was at the time a junior Australian artillery officer, was on exchange with the British Army and spent seven months defending a small outpost against hardened insurgents. This is a deeply personal, honest, and hard hitting discussion. But it is also a story of perseverance, hope, and a steady journey to recovery. Some of the topics we covered are Rob's rotation into theatre, the thrill of preparing for and going to war, the use of artillery as direct fire weapons, a description of helmet as the kinetic province. A reflection on how the local population might have viewed him and other coalition forces. Dealing with multiple casualties. Reflecting on mateship, camaraderie and a sense of purpose. The process of desensitization to war and combat. Reflection on the burden of command. The challenge of preserving one's own moral compass. And the struggle of upholding the delicate facade of morality in battle. The price of extreme compartmentalization and rationalization. Returning home, signs that things weren't right and asking for help. Symptoms, PTSD diagnosis, and importance of command support. Short term fixes but eventual relapse, downward spiral, and continual emotional compartmentalization. The path to recovery and reconnecting to emotions. Joining Dr. Alex Lim's Ketamine Program, onboarding and treatment initiation. A reflection on the ketamine treatment, its sensations, experiences, and insights a discussion on why ketamine remains contentious, how his treatment affected Rob's relationships with his wife and children, why seeking help matters, and other topics. Finally, given the nature of this discussion and the fact that many in our audience are veterans, there is a risk that elements of this episode might be difficult listening for some. If this is the case, I encourage you to seek help through one of the many channels nowadays available, some of which I've shared in the show notes. Okay. Okay. Now let's get to my chat with Robert Hartley. My guest today is Robert Hartley, who is a former Australian Army officer who served for 12 years in the Artillery Corps before transitioning to a civilian career in the technology sector. During his time in the military, Robert deployed on exchange with the British Army on Operation Herrick 12 to Helmand Province, Afghanistan in 2010. In his civilian life, Robert has worked for a number of technology companies, including Microsoft, before joining a startup where he is an executive director. Robert joins me today to discuss his life in the Army, how his deployment to Helmand resulted in a PTSD diagnosis, as well as his journey to recovery, which includes being part of the ketamine trials that I discussed at length with Dr. Alex Slim a few episodes ago. Lastly, for full disclosure, Rob is a good friend of mine. We completed all of our initial officer training together, and although we haven't always kept in touch throughout the years... I've always been well aware of Rob's outstanding achievements, both in uniform and as a civilian. On that note, Rob, uh, it's a true pleasure to host you on the Voice of War. Thanks for agreeing to join me.
0: No, thank you, Matt. It's uh, great to be here, and you're too kind.
1: <laughs> well, it's well, it's true, mate. You've uh, you've certainly uh, set the standard, uh, both in service and uniform, uh, but also outside. And I've uh, certainly enjoyed watching uh, how your career's has progressed. Uh, not many of our friends. Uh, Have landed so well uh, on the outside, uh, in the outside world. Um, On that note, also, you're the second person or second uh, good friend of mine who I'm speaking with uh, on this dire topic. Uh, So, right at the kind of start of the podcast, I spoke with Ash Judd, uh, who, as you as you fully well know, he became somewhat of a face uh, for the kind of increasing awareness of PTSD uh, in the army. Uh, So, I I genuinely mean it. Thank you for joining me. I know it's a uh, it's a very deeply personal subject, uh, and I'm humbled that you've, uh, you've agreed. Uh, so thanks again.
0: No, not a problem at all. No, your, your episode with Ash was one of the first ones that I listened to. That's what of set, set, me, set me down the voices of war journey.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, g- glad to hear it. I mean, it's, uh, that, that was uh, back in the, uh, in the early days, I, su- uh, I suppose. Uh, so before we get to the, I guess, uh, uh, rather dark subject of PTSD, firstly, maybe what motivated you to join the Army? What led to that? Have you got uh, military in the family, uh, or how did that uh, how did it occur?
0: No, look, honestly, I think it was almost uh, accidental for me. Um, my grandfather, you know, w- was was in in the military as almost everyone of that generation was around World War Two. So he was uh, mm. Kingstone Scottish Borderers, um, so you know, a, a European background uh, and fought across World mm-hmm. War Two. But I, I wouldn't say it was a, you know, we're not one of those families with a Strong military history, where everyone talks about it, thinks mm. about it, uh, and, and for me, it was after year twelve. I had a gap year. Really, didn't want, didn't know what I wanted to do with myself, uh, and I was just looking around at options. And at a career fair, I, uh, I ran into some army recruiters, and it was almost the yeah. accidental. Like, they kind of, you know, geez it was a great process of uh, come to one thing to find out a bit more information, and then just are oh, you pass this <laughs> around Just come to another day and learn a bit more, and then one more round of testing and. Sort of before you know yeah. it, I was down that path, and you know, accepted into ad for mm-hmm. university, and it, it all went from there. But it definitely wasn't, you know, I wasn't mm. one of those people that grew up dreaming of joining the military.
1: Yeah, right. And, and why artillery? What what led down? Um, just was there a reason that uh, that you opted for artillery?
0: Look, you know, in brutal honesty, there's probably two parts of it. Um, as you would well know, I wasn't the finest staff cadet uh, going around. I think I was always a bit of a struggler in barracks, so I never rated too highly. <laughs> um, and some of the cores wow. that were, some of the cores that were. Very competitive to get into. I wanted. I to think go
1: that's because you had a spirit. I don't think there was uh, anything to do with your performance. I think as you, you were you were always rather spirited.
0: <laughs> I was maybe a bit of a larrikin. Uh, quite a few extra check grades, but there were. I wanted to go to an arms corps, and yeah. I, you know, infantry, uh, armoured were very competitive, and I, you know, the mm-hmm. dream of sort of I was sold the dream of forward observer in artillery uh, that really appealed mm-hmm. to me. And then there was also it mm-hmm. was a far less competitive, so I thought I've got a much better opportunity of getting that pick and getting my preference of where I wanted to go, which was the, I'm working with the Parachute Battalion out of Sydney. Um, so that mm-hmm. was sort of the, the journey. Uh, at the time, I imagined it was going to be the, the forward observer and aircraft and all that, that great stuff. Uh, I never imagined I'd spend so much time on the gun line uh,
1: or, or love it so much. Mm-hmm. And it really almost got to that point anyway for you. I think we'll touch on that. Uh, But yes, you spent a lot of time on the gun line, uh, which is, I think, incidentally, also how you then deployed to Helmand uh, with the Brits. Can you just describe what happened there? How was it that you, a very junior Australian uh, officer, uh, deployed with the Brits?
0: Yeah, it it was a really interesting process. And when our era, you know, you'd be well aware, Maz, it was sort of coming out of this... Timor, Solomon Islands, where artillery had primarily re rolled into civil military cooperation Mm -hmm. or re roll as infantry. Uh, And there'd been almost no Mm -hmm. deployments of artillery in a core role, which I think was why artillery Mm -hmm. at the time was a little bit on the nose. People thought you're just going to, you know, you're just going to re roll as someone Mm -hmm. else or you're going to go sound at a checkpoint somewhere. Mm -hmm. So as, as Iraq and Afghanistan really emerged, the forward observers. Yeah, were were readily deployed, but the gun line was never deploying anywhere. And Australia Hmm. uh, had not, and still has not, uh, to my awareness, deployed its own guns in an offensive capability. Uh, So an agreement Hmm. was struck with the British Army under a unilateral exchange. They were absolutely flooded. They'd taken over a a large uh, area of Helmand Province under their command, and they were just running out of gun troop rotations. A lot of the soldiers were coming back from one deployment, posting to a new unit and going immediately again, or even at a mm. brigade-sized deployment, unable to fill their own staffing. So calling in reinforcements from other units who had themselves just come back from another deployment. So mm. uh, I don't know who the brains behind it was, uh, but someone said, well, hey, we've got Australian gunners with with a great wealth of technical knowledge, but no opportunity mm. to deploy operationally in their core role. And the British were screaming mm. out for people. So the the... The uh, the rotation process was essentially eight, one troop of Australian uh, gunners, so you know one junior officer, a couple of senior NCOs, and a and a troop of a, a couple of guns worth of Australian gunners picked up, embedded with a uh, with a British unit for around fourteen months mm-hmm. all up. It was about seven months of pre deployment training, uh, immersing with the British um, in in the UK somewhere, and then seven months on mm-hmm. on their Herrick rotation somewhere in Helmand province with them. Um, so yeah, I was—I mm. I, say—lucky enough. Um, I was reflecting on it this morning, and it—it it, was—it was a competitive process. Everyone wanted to go. It was the trip of trips, mm. you know. Mm. And I think back to the—even at that early stage, there was some of that recognized stupidity of knowing what 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 am I doing? Uh, I used to think back mm. to you know, you know, uni. We learnt some of those. We'd look at. Um, you know, marketing campaigns around World War One and World War II, you know, sort of, you know, get off the beaches yeah, and get into the to. trenches yeah. and, and you could yeah. expose that as the gamification of the concept of war. You know, some of the great literature yeah. of the past that's really been about that disillusionment of realising that isn't it isn't a game. Uh, so there was a part mm. of my consciousness that was aware I was throwing myself down that same path. But at the same time, mm. there's nothing anyone could have ever said that, that stopped me wanting to yeah. wanting to yeah. be challenged, wanting to go and see if I could do it, wanting to see if I had it. So we ran almost mm. – mm. the unit I was in, the uh, four regiment, ran probably almost, you know, uh, in hindsight, it was probably almost a year-long sort of selection between the junior officers of it was well-known yet mm. had, had to be the, the best and, and the, the most ready mm. to be picked to take that trip over. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, it was pretty But it was cool. also
1: representational posting in many ways. it was yeah. very representational in many ways, right?
0: So yeah. I think there was the right, you know, needed the right mix of the right personality, right place, right time, right seniority, performing well on the right technical courses, didn't do something too stupid and get yourself charged at a mess night for, mm-hmm. you know, doing something too crazy. So that was from pretty much mm-hmm. when I graduated, I, I worked out that a rotation would be coming up. I was the, the mm. fifth and penultimate rotation for Herrick. Uh, one after me, which was Dan Fussell, they then, they then scrapped the Herrick rotations.
1: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, okay. Is it, and, and why did they scrap it? I'm
0: uh, not entirely sure. Um, again, I, I imagine at a higher level that I wasn't aware of, there was probably some memorandum of understanding that had a certain number of, mm. <laughs> okay. but at the same time, Wrong. it was also coming into that drawdown of, you know, Australian presence and trying to move to another sort of phase of war. And mm. I think the reality mm. was Helmand Province and the British military were in an entirely different kinetic level of operation. Um, mm. It was not stability, it was counterinsurgency, it was it was warfare. And I think mm. that, that you know, we, we got lucky. Um, no Australian soldiers were killed on those rotations, but it felt like it was a matter of time and I think it would have been a much harder political justification for there was no mentoring, there was no hearts and minds, growing capability of the Afghan National Army. It was just deploying in your, your core role and fighting. So I mm. think from an Australian political perspective, when you're trying to wind down your presence in country, you're really promoting that we're there to support and enable having some random people mm. off in a kinetic province on the gun line, mm. fighting if one of us, you know, one of us, them, were to be killed, pretty hard pill to swallow for the Australian public, I think.
1: Mm. Mm for many people it would be perhaps unclear why somebody on a gun line, given the ranges we're talking about that you're deploying these guns at and and perhaps that's an answer, that's a question to ask as well is sort of what, what ranges were you were you were you were you hitting um and then the perhaps natural question that comes around why would you have been a threat why would your life have been a threat uh, given that you're presumably quite far from the actual uh, front line
0: yeah um Look, well, the first part of it, I guess I'd say, there was no real front line. You yeah. know, in, in the area of Helmand province yeah. that I was in, the, the fighting was, was fiercest along the green zone, You know, and that's the few kilometres of mm-hmm. either side of the Helmand River. Um, and you had, you know, sort of outposts, whether you call them combat outposts, fire support bases, FOBs, mm-hmm. uh, forward operating bases, whatever people referred to them as, dotted along at increments mm-hmm. between the large populations. And you were positioned so that you Mm. could provide offensive support, so two-two patrols in that area, and you were relatively Mm. close to each other so you could overlap. You know, the guns that we were Mm. using, the British Howitzer, had a maximum range of about 18 kilometres. But, you know, I'll pretty say and we did fire a few missions out at that distance. You know, I remember there was one time an American convoy out in the desert were, were contacted and needed support right at the edge of the range. But for the last three months of our tour, uh, and I remember just reflecting on how idiotic it was, we didn't fire a single mission that wasn't in protection of our own position. So we weren't actually doing Mm. our core role of firing in support of patrols. We were only firing in support Mm. of our own base. So by virtue of the fact, it's this this chicken and egg of you're there to provide support, but because you're there, just sitting Mm. on the edge of the green zone, you're a target. So it's this, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, counterinsurgency doctrine and, and it's idiocy. We were, we were fighting because we were there and they mm-hmm. were fighting us because we were there. And, and, you know, we were killing them because they were trying to kill us and, we, you know, you sort of reflect and go, well, <laughs> that, that is just the, the definition of mm-hmm. attrition. We weren't there for the land. We weren't trying to patrol. We didn't have freedom of manoeuvre or any of those things that you learn about. It was just we were mm-hmm. holding ground and they were trying mm-hmm. to take it off us. So, all of our – what I was blown away by was the proximity of it all. So, we were high up on uh, a cliff just above the green zone. So, we actually use direct fire far more than we use any indirect. Um, so, you know, wow. for, for, for the sort of non-artillery listeners, your indirect fire is where you you know, your typical – the guns are at a sort of 45-degree angle and you're lobbing your rounds off 10 kilometres into the distance. Direct fire is where you're mm. – we had the guns elevated on a platform above the wall and so you can bore sight and you just look through the barrel at what you're trying to hit and you're firing oh. line of sight. So it's just like a very big rifle at that stage because uh, all the yeah, patrols wow. up to sort of company strength patrols weren't getting out more than about 800 metres from base at any time oh. during the seven-month tour before they were contacted, <sighs> took a casualty. So it's sort of it had that intimacy of even in an artillery role, you are in fire support range. You know, you're – we were the machine gun fire Mm. support. We had our 50 cards grenade machine guns. We had our – you know, even our howitzers were just like really big rifles firing either smoke barrages Mm. to help people withdraw firing, direct fire artillery, illumination rounds. And I think that, you know, the tipping point, we had a pretty quiet first part of the tour Kind of normal, I guess you'd call it. But at that stage, we had uh, several hundred, it's quite a large base, probably about 300 people total. Uh, Danish mechanized combat team with a couple of Abrams tanks, CV 9s, which were an infantry fighting vehicle with, you know, 35 mil cannons on them. Like We were like a bristling porcupine of death. No one wanted to touch us. And then the way things happen with higher headquarters not communicating, the Danish largely got redeployed because we were a quiet area. And it was, again, that cause and effect of Mm. it was probably quiet because no one wanted to attack the 300 people with tanks. Um, Take the 300 Mm. people and the tanks away and we were suddenly a very large, very easy target. So our manning fell to about Mm. 75 people for the last three months of the tour uh, and it became me and another Danish lieutenant Sort of, he controlled the 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 infantry team, and I controlled the the base and the local defence. And at that stage, Mm. we became a a very obvious target for the local insurgents. And our our very helpful uh, special forces brethren had prosecuted a few um, VIPs and killed the local insurgent leader, which kicked off almost an election campaign where there were the three rival leaders mm. from different parts of the area and they all made it like a campaign promise and one was going to shoot down an Apache, uh, one was going to – I can't remember what the guy on the other river, side of the river was going to do, but the guy nearest to us was going to mm. overrun our base. and So he made that his commitment. Mm. He was going to, I'm going to overrun that base and I'm going to take it over and that's sort of how he would become the head honcho. So for about the last mm. three months, they—they they just we were under a sustained attack um, and we were just fighting to hold the ground that we were there for.
1: Wow. that's. uh, I mean, I imagine for most of our Australian listeners, that might be a surprise to hear that uh, Australians were even involved in that type of uh, fighting in Afghanistan because uh, most most of those Australians who deployed uh, went to TK, Kandahar, Kabul, uh, where things were certainly vastly different. What was it about Helmand? And Helmand obviously is quite renowned for the violence, or as you described it, I think, the kinetic province. What was it about Helmand? You believe that made it so kinetic?
0: And I'm far from an expert on this, so it was sort of first hand observations plus reading I did before I went over and, you know, your theatre briefs and things like that. Um, And I also will caveat it by saying I just don't have experience of other provinces, so I don't know Mm. how different it was. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Look, it it was really agrarian peasantry. Yeah, it was, you would watch people farm their fields with sickles by day. You know, no running water apart from what they could do via aqueducts, uh, very little in the way of machinery and maybe one tractor between multiple families in an area, mud hut. Hmm. So I think you've got that natural, incredibly low socioeconomic grounds where an insurgency can often take root. We're not talking Alashkagar where you've previously had universities and you've got quite, Mm. you know, Mm. you've got um, one of the interpreters that I worked with, he'd gone to the University of Lashkar and his mother had been a Mm. a professor there previously. That was just night and day Mm. different from where we were. Uh, And you also were so close down to the border with Pakistan. So there was this fairly porous border Mm. uh, and we would receive the intelligence reports of -of out-of-area fighters coming through and you'd hear them on the radio. You'd hear different accents. Mm. And we became almost the test ground for... Uh, new weapons coming into theatre because there were just absolute porous border with Pakistan. So, you know, the first time under un- grenade launchers were being used in theatre, it was sort of in our area because they were easy to get across. And there would be, you know, Chechenian fighters coming, uh, you know, and mercenaries and other more ideological driven fighters from around the world, world. And they'd obviously come in from the south and then make their way up north. So you could almost see the, 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 the ink blot map of new weapons coming into theatre uh, and we were kind of at that, that nexus. So I think it's always mm-hmm. had the reputation, the whole province, as being sort of the heart of the insurgency. And then when I was there, that was the time when uh, President Obama surged sort of 40-odd thousand more forces into the area. So just kick the hornet's nest. Uh, you know, you, you start taking out leaders, uh, you create power vacuums, jostling of international forces you know leaving overlaps like we were in where suddenly everyone sort of left Mm. that was my sort of understanding of it um it was just all they knew that the people it was just it was Mm. there was nothing else there was no infrastructure there was no electricity there weren't shops schools it was just farm fight farm fight um desert green Mm. zone that was it
1: and who were you to them and and, and the reason i ask you in particular because i think this is uh, and I, and I totally appreciate the fact that you saying you're not an expert and you have a limited, uh, on the ground experience. But I think this is the lived experience of those who we send forth to fight our wars, uh, which we don't often hear about as to how you contextualize the role you're playing on the ground there and then. Uh, yes, we can hear from all the experts, you know, the strategic vision or lack thereof or what, you know, what's being discussed in Doha, in Washington, in mm. London, in Canberra, et cetera. But it, we very rarely hear of those who and, – and, and I didn't know that you were in charge of that base ultimately for the last three months. How, how did you feel there and how did the locals view you? Who were you to them? You know, how did they consider you? What, what relationship did they have with you? I, I, because I'd in, imagine not all of them were Taliban as, as, no. as clearly defined, right?
0: I, I, I would go so far as to say like the idea – we didn't even use the term Taliban it was such an esoteric okay, notion of who was there. It, you know, insurgents were the people that were fighting you at the time, whether it was <laughs> yes. ideological, yep. whether they were, you know, aligned to the Taliban or whether they were just pissed off. You know, like mm. it, it could mm-hmm. be anything in, in between. The, the, the part that I found interesting talking to my you know, peers that deployed in other provinces that, you know, when they were mentoring Afghan forces and working with interpreters closely, I never had any of that. It was, a, it, was a, it was that war-fighting interaction. There was nothing more. So I dare say to those people, mm. I was a faceless jerk on the top of a hill who kept dropping bombs on them. Um, no mm. conversations. I didn't once have a conversation with an Afghan that wasn't someone, you know, working. We had some locally employed civilians in a kitchen,
1: mm. um, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: an interpreter, but he only worked over the radio listening to uh, ICOM chatter. So we weren't out, you mm. know, patrolling mm. hearts and minds, the first part of the tour, the Danish were making that footprint felt and that was your more conventional go out and try to project our presence into that area, bring stability, doing missions like uh, securing bridges so that they could, you know, get commerce going on east-west across the river. Um, there was a national election when I was there, so go and secure polling stations, denial patrols to try and, you know, clear IED cases or clear weapons cases, take out high-profile leaders uh, but towards the end of the tour, we weren't able to force project. So we'd lost too many forces to be able to project out. Uh, we'd lost most of our armoured vehicles, mm. either to ID strikes or being withdrawn. So our perimeter just sort of shrunk. And if you think about any of your mm. defensive operations, we were we were losing because we weren't projecting out. So they they had complete freedom of movement up to and around our base. So we sort of just became, like, well, let's hold up and not get overrun. Uh, so for me i had no relationship with the afghan people apart from watching them and you'd watch day and night from your from your senses from your the watch points you'd watch them farm you'd start to understand their pattern of life their buildings all had nicknames you know that you would that had a very practical purpose because it gave you the quickest way to no one knows what you're talking about and you say, you know, I've been yeah. attacked from compound 43B or something, but you say, you know, we're getting shot mm. at from Hollywood, uh, we're getting shot at from mm. Grenade Wall. Um, but that was really it. It was it was desensitised, it was faceless, it was standoffish, and I imagine for them it was eg- exactly the same. We were just that, we would have been like this, you know, like thing on the hill overlooking them. Mm. Uh, and because we were there, IEDs were there because, you know, as you say, I'm sure so many of them were just farmers going about their day, but because we were there, the area was just riddled with IEDs. You know, no-one benefits from, you know, shooting happening across a paddock because they guarantee guaranteed there's some people in that mm. paddock who are laying on their guts just hoping not to get shot. Mm. No-one benefits from mm. dropping high explosives in and around compounds so I dare say they didn't think very highly of me, and I, I didn't know them at all.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it's a very, it's a, it's not often one hears that side of the, um, that kind of side of the close combat, uh, especially as, <laughs> as an artilleryman. Um, it's a, uh, it's uh, certainly not a common story. It's without a doubt you've had an exceptionally complex deployment, and I, I dare say one of the hardest ones that. Uh, our peers have deployed to. But what are some of the most standout moments given how intense it was uh, throughout your – so you said you were, you were actually in country for about seven months then? Yeah, that, it was about, that about right? seven months, yeah. Yeah, so what, what would you say would be kind of your standout memories that you've taken away from that uh, those seven months?
0: Yeah, look, there's so many, um, good and bad. And again, I sort of want to caveat it by saying – If it sounds like I'm glorifying it all, uh, I'm not attempting to, but that period of time is, Mm. it's larger than life in my mind. Mm. And I think you would have spoken to a lot of people that when you come back from that absolute heightened intensity where every sensor in your body is alert, it feels like you've been staring at the sun and you come back to normal life and Mm. everything is just a sort of pale imitation of the real deal. The goods aren't as good, the Mm, bads mm, aren't as bad. Um, So I'm not trying to glorify mm. what happened there, but it was a – some of those things were so amazing to be challenged, to feel, to have succeeded in life or death combat. There is nothing that matches it. It's all
1: encompassing, right? It's intoxicating. yeah. yeah, And and that
0: world, your world has shrunk to a few hundred metres either side of you, and it's life or death. Mm. And then when you live through it, you know, you've, you've won objectively. Mm, um, mm, mm, mm. So, look, the, the whole period of, for me, I, I felt like I, I really did come of age. I, I went there as, you know, nervous, probably lacking in a bit of the self-confidence to really know who I was. But being there in charge of the team, the rapport I built with our guys, seeing how they performed... It just sort of helped me validate that I was I was good at something. I, don't, I didn't know what the combo was, what the recipe was, but it's was like, hey, this works. We as a team work. Mm. And then, you know, that, that I have memories there that it was everything that I thought a junior officer should be doing, my, my relationship with my senior NCOs. Uh, you know, there was one example where we were... We were up in a direct fire position trying to cover a patrol that we're trying to withdraw in contact and we wanted to put down a smoke screen for them. The gunnery computer wouldn't calculate the range because it was under 600 metres. So the gunnery computer sort of said, Mm. you know, computer says, no, why would you be firing smoke (laughs) rounds less than 600 Mm, metres? It couldn't couldn't calculate a fuse. So I sort of brought the, Mm. you know, the junior officer wacky idea of we can direct fire smoke. And then, you know, and I know how conceptually from a ballistic way, if we just calculate mm. the muzzle velocity of that round and the distance, we can reverse engineer yeah. a fuse setting. Mm. But then I had uh, mm. the mm. warrant mm. officer with me with the 20 years of knowledge, you know, when I could say what's the muzzle velocity of a such and such round at charge one, he'd spit mm. it off the top of his head and we'd say, okay, let's, mm. let's make mm. up a fuse setting on the fly, just set them by hand. First one sputtered deep into the mud. So, okay, our maths mm, suck. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. Wind the fuse <laughs> back, back a by bit, half yeah, a yeah. centimetre. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> but, you know, laying <laughs> down a direct fire smoke, uh, you know, smoke screen, you know, you know, us taking rounds on our position, covering a patrol in contact. It was just what I thought I was supposed to be doing. Mm. And then as that kinetic mm. intensity ramped up uh the fighting ramped up and the culmination point of it the guys with their it's seared in all our memories there was a towards the very end of the tour we'd had increasingly kinetic attacks sort of around that september period because i remember one of them happened on september 11 um but sort of august 21st because it was my birthday uh there was a big attack and i'd been on the we had the satellite phones you know we just sort of you got it twenty minutes a week mm. uh, of credit on a satellite phone, and mm. I was talking to Fee at the time. Then um, we came in contact, mm. and it was sort of like, you know, hit hang up, and I didn't communicate with her for a couple <laughs> oh, of sorry, days. Sorry, baby, got to go. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, I didn't communicate <laughs> with her for a few days afterwards. Um, I said, oh no, no, it, was, yeah, it, it yeah. was nothing. The phone just dropped out, and then afterwards she found out what had happened, mm. and she she grilled me. Um, mm. But mm, no they idea. were increasingly probing our position. And so to set the scene by that stage, we hadn't patrolled out in you know well over a month or two. Uh, IEDs, we were taking IED strikes when we did try to go out within thirty meters of the wall. So people would crawl up under the cover of dust storms and lay IEDs basically under our watch positions. So you could go out to try and wow. check a claymore cable or to check your we had, you know, a couple of layers of uh, you know, concertina razor wire. You could go out to try and clear those and not make it. So it was essentially just mm. give up, just hold the position. Um, mm. They had, yeah, they mentioned that whole election campaign was going on. So they had, you know, people attacking us from different areas, range of weapons. It was, I don't, you remember back to our lessons, uh, sitting in the theatre at Duntroon and you'd go through Russian. Uh, weapons and learn their mm. ranges you like, what a waste of time and we actually started playing bingo of all the weapons that were you know like spg9 mm. zsu-23s these ridiculous like i'm getting shot at by a russian anti-aircraft weapon what is going on in mm. my life mm. um mm. so it just mm. culminated in this one attack sort of mid-october uh, and it was a genuine sustained attack to try and overrun the base and I remember watching it, it just seared into my memory that we saw, I got called up to one of the sangers and we saw three people crawling up through the green zone and sort of, it was like they were on a chute site. You know, So for those, that, again, the listeners have done mm. it, the chutes, the the training you would do where you, you, you're looking at the hill and you say, how would I attack this? And it was almost like they had a staff member with them. There were three of them there and uh, pointing at us and they were sketching on the ground. And I thought, okay, that's, that's three people running a, a, mm. a mud model of how to how to attack me. Mm. And as the sun started to come down, we thought that's probably when we're going to get hit. And uh, we started to see some people move into positions. The rules of engagement we were under were self-defence only, uh, so basically wait to get shot at before you can shoot back or, mm. you know, hand on heart genuine threat just someone moving with a weapon's not enough you know you, you don't have to wait to get shot but if you see them raise a weapon in your mm-hmm. direction if you can put your hand on heart yeah. say that was self-defense you're okay um we saw someone move up you know move a, a pkm sort of a heavy machine gun into position and we had one uh we had a few armored vehicles left with us the cv9 so it sort of just creeped up to a wall optics just above the wall so he could see it and, uh, you know, someone with a radio so that we're going to get some indirect fire as well. Uh, and so I was in the, the command centre at that stage looking through optics and using the radios, talking to people, and I sort of said, as soon as we take a mortar round in, kill that guy with the radio. And then obviously, you know, it's, then it's weapons clear as soon as people start engaging us. Mm. Uh, and it kicked off mm. there sort of just on dawn, uh, just on dusk, which was from memory around 6pm, with sort of heavy machine gun fire, mm. mortar rounds. And it kicked on for about the next three or four hours. Uh, and it was you know, we were yeah. getting attacked from three directions simultaneously, nearly achieving break-in. They were up to our perimeter wall, sort of you know, when I, I remember when I did the roundup at the end of your casualty and ammunition that you'd expended, you know, I was I was tallying the list and I was like, Who's who's been firing nine mil? And it was, you know, one of the forward observers acts up on the wall with his nine mil firing off the side of the wall, down at the people below. It was sort of, you know, coming in and trying to oh. climb the walls to get over. Um, so just sustained RPGs, mortars, uh, they're heavy weapons. So they had that anti-aircraft gun that was taking chunks out of us. Yeah. Uh, I was on sort of all the different nets at once, talking to people on the radio, calling for backup, and... Um, I was getting sent the the note that I didn't want to get across one of the, the, the secret networks that was sort of saying, you know, when you get broken into, just accept breaking in the south and fight your way back to the northern wall. And they were dispatching the QRF <laughs> from FOB Price, which was going to be some tanks. So they were going to crash some Abrams tanks through the wall and get us to fight back behind mm-hmm. the tanks and sort of try and get us out that way. And I sort of was reading this message going, going, hey, can we go with an if, please, not a when? Uh, I, get, I get overrun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And just yeah. um, yeah, sort of highlight anecdotes.
1: So, I mean, the fact that you can laugh at it is better, but, but, I mean, it's obviously no, no laughing matter, but, geez, uh, that's, that's that's pretty intense.
0: At the time, it was one of those, you know, and then you're trying to project calmness down the radio to people, not letting them know quite how bad mm. it is. The guys describe it to me as, Almost a scene out of Star Wars because we—it was the strangest things that stick in your memory. But obviously, we had red tracer rounds, and they were largely using mm. old-era Russian and Chinese rounds, which are green tracer. So it was just red and green mm. tracer arcing across the position. Um, and then it's the most bizarre, almost satirical moment. But I was sitting in this command center, you know, you just got everything squawking at you. You've got radios on different nets. You've got the local command net. The, the Danes had broken into Danish by then because they were at, you know, they were sort of in extremely mm. high stress mode as well. So you've got different languages chirping at you. And the phone rang, like a, you know, like a normal telephone rang on, on the mission secret network. Oh, you know, I ignored it for a while and picked it up. You know, what? And it was an American JTAC from a neighbouring uh, patrol base, and he'd heard our radio chatter and knew what was going on. And I didn't have any—I didn't have a taxat, so I couldn't talk to aircraft because uh, we'd lost our JTAC. Mm. So he had queued up an, uh, a British Apache helicopter on his taxat, and he was just jamming a presser switch of his radio to to his oh, his wow. phone. And it, so I i sort of got patched into this British attack, Apache through a through a landline <laughs> telephone in this talk. <laughs> And, you know, just a bizarre shocked, moment yeah. of calling in this Apache um, on our own position. So there were moments like that. I remember one moment slightly earlier in the tour that I was in my best uh, footy shorts and pluggers, thongs, uh, and I'd just been, <laughs> just been in the gym and we started taking mortar rounds. So I sprinted to the headquarters, sprinted to the top. Um, we had a light counter mortar radar, so we had a 10-figure grid at the firing point that we were getting shot at. But I couldn't raise the gun line on the, you know, on the radio, to pass the grid to them. Mm. And it turned out that the line had been broken. And it, it's again this mix of World War One crap. We were running yeah. Don Ten Tannoy line, and the mortar rounds had blown mm. up our mm. line. So I had to, I scribbled the grid down on the ten figure grid on my hand, and did what I thought would be a heroic dash, to the gun line through this mortar <laughs> fire. Saw an RPG come sailing in over the top of the hit the deck and it's just skimmed over my head. Had a plugger a blowout. So I'm sort of you know
1: thinking, what well, am no, I mate, doing? No, nah, like, nah, gotta stop, mate. That's it. That's end of the war then, mate. Okay. you <laughs> like, out my like, one. RPG in, and everything, no worries. This but this is nah. inhumane. You've blown out my <laughs> one pluggers.
0: How am I supposed to shower?
1: That's it. Yeah.
0: Get to the gun line. We you know and that was the first um, time that we like we really said, hey, we've got to think liberally here. There was no forward observer, so we couldn't follow the normal procedures and it was sort of, hang on, who's mm-hmm. calling in the fire mm-hmm. mission? Mm-hmm. And that's when we pivoted to direct fire because well, I've got the grid and I'm here and I can see the firing point. I'm the observer now. Mm-hmm. So we sort of just started calling in a lot of direct yeah. fire. All the guns by that stage were built up on these berms to above the level of the HESCO walls um, because mm-hmm. we found, they'd, they'd found on an earlier tour that, you know, with the difference of the gun sort of sitting here and the HESCO wall being higher, you had to elevate to a certain trajectory Mm. just to clear the wall. Mm. So then it left this dead zone that you you couldn't engage. So by digging the guns up, you counterintuitively gave away your only protection because you were no longer behind a wall, but you could depress the guns and achieve direct fire. So just, Mm. look, you know, seven months of incidental memories like that that are pretty well seared in.
1: How did you get away without any casualties? Um, luck, I think. Uh, so
0: that the at our mm. patrol base and in the tour, like, yeah. we took heavy casualties. Um, so out of uh, look, I think out of the British rotation, again the numbers are foggy. I, I think it was eighty odd mm. uh, mm. killed on on our tour, British uh, oh, wow. from our brigade. We lost one from our battery uh, who was on who was F O A C on patrol, so not out of our patrol base, and there are a few more from the regiment that were killed. Uh, the Danish we were with lost heavily, so the Danish uh, lieutenant that I was working with lost both his legs in an I D strike and was killed. We we, we you know, evacuated him onto a helicopter, but he died on the way out. You know, other people from the patrol base, one of the drivers was killed in an ID, another ID strike, waterman, triple amputee, guide. Um, so there were many people killed in the patrol base and uh, and from our battery and from our regiment, but the, the sort of 14 of us Aussies uh, literally just dodged bullets, I think, and it's that chaotic part of war you can... You can miss it by an inch, or you can miss it by a mile, and and some days you you step on the ID, and someone steps one one foot to the side and, and doesn't. So, mm.
1: yeah, that's a, that's absolutely absolutely incredible. How did your um, your soldiers fare after after that deployment?
0: Mixed an uh, uh, Alan's mixed bag of lollies, I'd say. Um, an incredibly mm-hmm. tight bunch. Mm-hmm. One one guy who who you know I, I won't named, refused to come back from Rockle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, relief out of country, leave. Mm-hmm. So the sort of mid-tour, he just mm-hmm. refused to come back. Yeah, um, And that was a breach of trust. You know, he, the, the feelings of the guys for him were uh, not kind. And, you know, again, everyone mm-hmm. has their reasons, but it in that environment, you did need to make that commitment to something other than yourself and by by opting out of the team, it just, it screwed everyone else. You fight a man down. There's no, no one sends a reinforcement. No mm. one sends a replacement. Mm. You just had to go the last five months mm. of the tour, a man down. So he obviously was feeling the effects even at the time. Uh, and I know from, I'm still in touch with all the guys and all of the British uh, guys as well. It's really impacted people differently. Some have shown similar uh, sort of, you know, issues to me and we talk through that and we, we work through it. Others seem pretty fine with it. Um, others probably struggling in their own way maybe don't recognize it. Some maybe be struggling in their own way, don't feel comfortable talking to me about it. So yeah, 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 I think yeah, it's a it's a yeah. it's a bond that brought us all together, and I know you know many of them went and on, deployed on other rotations and sort of just reflected that it was it just wasn't the same. It was just like we'd played the biggest game of our lives and everything after that. So most of them got out very quickly yeah. afterwards. And I think the, the feeling mm. was common amongst us. It sort of just felt like the army was play-acting after that. It was almost mm. like we just did that. Mm. That was that was real. That was the absolute ultimate of our roles. What have you got left for me, army? And I think most people, the shine came off mm. after that and, you know, mixed degrees of disillusionment, mm. um, you know, the fact that you were never going to do something like that again.
1: Hmm. You used the words before when you're describing the, the, your time in those seven months as, as your world reducing and that you became desensitized and that it was, you know, the, the, that, that was kind of it. Describe for me this idea of desensitized. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, look, it's such an interesting one. And it's actually, it's probably the thing that I think for me led to so many of my, you know, longer term issues down the track. I think it becomes a – the the process for me of desensitizing starts as a survival mechanism and as a coping strategy. You know, mm. if you're being asked to kill and you're seeing these things around you – It's almost welcome in out. that sense. It yeah. is, and yeah. it's it it's adaptive in that environment because you can't function without it. You, you can't, you know, deal with the death of someone and give yourself time to grieve – because the decision needs to be made in the next second. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a few tipping points for me during the tour where I remember thinking, what's happening to me? It was it was obvious to me that I was becoming desensitised um, or potentially that I just was, I was getting to like a, a Jedi master level of compartmentalising. Uh, I separated myself mm-hmm. largely from home. I was completely dismissive of the you know, the sort of Australian-style welfare hub, which didn't really have it. There was sort of one Mm. computer that the Danish had and you could get on Facebook Messenger from time to time if you went there at three in the morning or something. Um, I just didn't bother. I didn't bother with the sat phone. I spoke to Fee maybe once a fortnight, once every three weeks, because it felt like that was there and I'm here. And the more I am in that world, the less I am focused on this world. Uh, And this world is survival. And so... Yeah, as an example, one of the one of the guys from our battery that was killed. I was told over the radio had been killed, and I had to pass the news to the team. And I remember telling them, and echo with me for a long time afterwards how little I felt. I couldn't quite picture his face. It was like I was telling people the milk had arrived. I was able to just completely compartmentalise mm-hmm. and go, "He's dead. That's done now. I have to tell the team so that they know." But also, you know, patrol's out in five minutes, so. You know, move mm. on. And some of the guys mm. who were very close and mm. schoolmates with him were torn apart. And I remember at the time going, Whoa, mm. what's that? that? That to me is a normal human reaction. Why am I not feeling any of that?
1: What's happened to me? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, well. And I think that environment does it. The death is everywhere. Um, you know, there was a time where we used to refer to them as own goals. If someone digging in an IED blew themselves up, and it was a source of great hilarity when, you know, someone digging an IED would blow up because if you by the end of the tour, you'd, so you'd hear the bang, and if it didn't come with rounds incoming, you'd just oh well, it's not worth getting out of bed for. And I remember we had a Danish mm-hmm. doctor who had recently joined the rotation, and they were, you know, the Danish doctors were what we would think of as sort of a reservist, so he was a civilian doctor doing military service.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we were on the wall together, and there was an IED blast um, we didn't have a patrol out. So immediately you go, eh? Don't, don't really care. And we watched the mm. footage, and it was a guy who'd mm. gone into the wadi probably to lay the ID. Might have just been an unlucky guy, but more than likely, he was trying to set an ID and blew himself up. And we watched him. Mm. He's still alive. He wasn't instantly killed. He just, you know, maimed. And we watched him sort of trying to crawl towards us, probably a couple of hundred meters away. And the Danish doctor said, well, "We've got to go out and get him. Like that's a, that's an injured person. Sort of, you know, mm. by the Hippocratic oath, I'm going to go get that person." <laughs> mm. And I remember we just looked at him like, are you batshit mad? Like, no, we're not. Like, where there's one Mm. IED, there's more. Mm. And you can just sit on the wall and watch someone Mm. bleed out and go, oh, well, he was trying to lay an IED. Crack on. Or Mm. maybe wasn't, but not my problem. Um, Another incident, Mm. I remember someone getting blown Mm. up by an IED, a local, and seeing the kids come from the local town to come pick up the body parts, you know, and they brought a big bed sheet out with them, Mm. essentially. And these are young kids all going out to, you know, pick up the body parts of Uncle Bill, uh, you know, chuck him in this sort of grip it up like mm-hmm. a little rucksack and drag him back home. And I just thought that world mm-hmm. where, you know, the people over there, that's their life raised in that. So the mm-hmm. desensitisation we feel is nothing compared to the what they go through. But it was noticeable, right? Mm-hmm. Like even, yeah, it's probably a bit of a, uh, <laughs> not the most pleasant of conversations, but even the pornography the guys are watching I remember noticing it got increasingly more extreme. It was like mm. the base level of of human arousal just raised throughout the tour, and I don't just mean sexual arousal. You know, your your attention yeah, state. Yeah, it yeah. took yeah, the first time when are in the theatre and you hear a gun gunshot, everyone, you know, whoa, what was that? Scramble to the walls, get to positions. Is that us? Is that are we not? First ID strike. Holy crap, where was that? Mm. What do we do? And by the end, you just you don't mm. get out of bed unless, you know, you really, you know, okay, yeah, that's actually us getting shot. Or even if it's us getting shot, you're like, uh, oh, no, the Sangers have got it. I'm not getting out of bed mm. for that one. Um, and the level of everything just became more visceral, more graphic. So I think that's the real dehumanising part to protect yourself from the reality of killing, being killed, facing death as a young officer having to make decisions that you knew bore a reasonable likelihood were going to kill the people that you were in charge of and were close with. Mm. And I found the sort of the bombardiers, you know, corporal equivalents were about, tended to be about my age as a young lieutenant. Mm. And you'd look at these mm. people who you just spent seven months, well, you know, a year in Australia training with, seven months in the UK training and living with, and then on this tour together, living and sleeping together, and you go, that's a branch in the road of there's no class structure, as you well know. That is a different choice at recruiting. A- and we were friends. We were, you mm. know, for all intents and purposes, could have been very similar people. Another turn at recruiting mm. and we could, I could mm. have ended up with them or they could have ended up at Duntroon next to us. But you then still had mm. to be able to compartmentalise mm. and say, but I need you to go out and do that. I need you to go and lead that clearing mm. patrol or I need you to push that gun to the top of that hill out into harm's way and man that direct fire position. And if you get killed in the doing so, that's that's what we're all here for. Um, so I just think it was a necessity mm. to be able to compartmentalise and desensitise yourself from the fact that you couldn't rip yourself apart at the time of going, is this the right decision? What if they get killed? Am I responsible? What have I done? Um, mm. Mm. So I'd say that's the micro mm. level and then at the macro level, the whole conflict it was, you know, I, I recognised while I was there just the abject stupidity of what we were doing. That, as I mentioned at the start, that notion of I'm they're fighting me because I'm here, and then I keep killing them, so they come back and fight me again. It's exactly, you know, I'd sort of read all of Kilcullen's stuff, and you go, "This is we're doing this wrong." But it wasn't within my sphere of influence mm. to change the strategy of the war, or even when withdrawals are announced, and you say, "Okay, we've lost now," but. All I can actually influence is trying to keep my people as safe as I can and do it, you know, just war theory. Mm. I I can fight this little part of the war in a just way. I can make sure we do the right Mm. thing. Mm. I can make sure to the best of my ability I keep us safe and we all get home alive. And I just had to put my horsey blinkers on outside that and go, I I can't think about the futility of this war. I can't think about whether it's the right thing Mm. for us to be here. We've been sent here. We are here, and now we just have to get out.
1: Given that uh, desensitization and the callousness that you had to embody to do your job, how hard was it to comply with the just war tradition and the principles so deeply embedded uh, in our folklore, if nothing else?
0: It um, It was really hard. And I remember I I got into a bit of strife at a, you know, when I'd returned to Australia, there was a sort of the CO's, professional military education. You know, you'd go to the mess and you'd talk Mm. through experiences and I was asked to speak about it. And I was really bothered by this notion that people really thought, like, Australians are different. Australians would never commit Mm. war crimes. You know, gee whiz, we've seen the sort of the fallacy of that over time potentially. But I think it was that. Mm, mm. there's something to be proud about our culture but there's also no need to be naive and pretend that that doesn't affect human beings i i felt genuinely at the time and i say this with absolute love and respect to the guys as the young officer there i was the one with a pack of rabid dogs on the lead these were guys that they were Mm. desensitized Mm. and trained to kill and i feel Mm. there was that we were like hemmed in, attacked daily, you know, like it just, it was claustrophobic. You just wanted to escape and you couldn't, you had to stay and hold ground. And we knew full well that the people that we were watching by day in the paddocks were the ones fighting us by night. And I, Mm, I, mm. you know, it's an experiment that never came to pass. But if you'd gone up into one of those sangers and said, the next time the shooting starts, just take out that field. We know it's them. If it's mm. not them today, it's going to be them tomorrow. And I think mm. that would have happened. And people got so offended at this mm. PME session. They said, no, no, not Australians. They'd never do that. I said, well, Why do we fundamentally mm. think Australian soldiers are different to American soldiers or British soldiers or any human being who is under that prolonged stress? And so that's when I think, you know, mm. people say, what's the role of the young officer? And it was to, to draw that morality line and say like yes that that could happen and i feel it too but we are here to do it differently and i have to keep a very close check on we have rules of engagement we have the things that safeguard us from crossing that precipice and i distinctly Hmm. remember one time we'd lost some people to an id strike by day and it was one of the few times that I, i dealt with afghans they came to the we had a walk in area, you know, sort of a simic, you could come approach the patrol base. Mm. High as kites, right? You know, it's so all you know on IPM and high as kites, three mm. fighting age males jokingly coming in and we were we were a laughing stock to them. So they basically came in and, you know, that we had a CIMIC officer at the time who did the usual do you want rice, do you want this? This is what I can give you. There's no we want ca- mm. we want ca- we want a car battery. And it had been a car battery ID that had killed one of our people that day. You know, we, we need a new car battery. That you know, we've used ours up today. That type of thing. And I could have. I, I to this day, we knew it was them. They knew it was them. They were having a great old laugh, full of opium confidence, knowing that we wouldn't do anything. Obviously, not going to give them a battery. But I could have pulled mm. pulled out my pistol and shot them all on the spot and gone to sleep like a baby, knowing full well that it was them and I'd just taken three fighters out of the mm. game. But but you can't do it mm. and you have to hold yourself to a higher mm. standard mm. of they're exploiting our rules of engagement as weakness, but it's a slippery slope of that is a war crime. You know, I know it, you mm. know it. That's mm. not what we're there to do and I think mm. if you don't hold on to that element of your humanity that you're going to fight the war in a different way, because you can't drag yourself down to the level of the conflict. Otherwise, it does just become all-encompassing. And I think that's where people ever struggle to come back from it, you know, the, the sort of hmm. that internal wound.
1: Yeah. And I'd imagine, I mean, uh, I, as I alluded to at the start, I mean, I've always known you as being somebody who's, you know, strong of will and 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 a person of, of- Deeply developed character, and you know there are many, many of those in our peer group. I'm not trying to elevate you to some uh, unreasonable pedestal, uh, but you certainly, you know, were always uh, a standout performer. But I wonder how many others would have been able to handle that pressure in the same way. Uh, and I don't say this to demean anybody, but war impacts, and those conditions impact people differently. You know, it was an interplay of your you and all your uh, personal history mm. interplaying with that environment. And I guess for the luck of your guys and those people you were there with and probably your own sanity, you made the decisions that you hopefully can sleep with uh, at night. But I'd imagine there would have been a lot of people who wouldn't have been able to, not because they're bad people, because they're evil, but because they just come back, they just come into this with different personal history, different personal sensitivities, traumas, uh, ability to, to, to desensitize, to compartmentalize. And again, this is not casting shame on anyone, but that I feel is just the reality of it.
0: Yeah, look, and I think it's, it's a really interesting thing that I've reflected on over the years, which is the things that make you adaptive in theater can be the very things that make you maladaptive back home and can go too far. Mm. So I certainly, I always noticed it, um, not so much in training at Duntroon, but, you know, on, on sort of career courses and other things like that, where I did notice that I seemed to just have a, an ability to operate rationally at a higher level of stress. Um, you know, a, a JTAC course that I did when I came back, and it's all about absorbing information and multiple, langu- you know, multiple radio feeds and thinking in a 3D battle space, and you just watch people hit the barrier where their brain just goes, nope, I, ne- mm. I need to do this one thing and I need to do that thing. And they're not dumb people, but mm. it would be you've got an instructor yeah. on your shoulder pushing you, where are we at, what are we doing? And it was an ability to just be mm. able to beep, block it all out and just make rational decisions mm. that I found then in theatre just ramped to a whole nother level of And you watch people start Mm. to panic, the emotions start to overcome. So being able to suppress emotion, make rational decisions, operate off logic, and just follow drills of this is what I need to do, gunnery drills, Mm. fire drills, protect the base. If then,
1: if then, if then, if then. And
0: constantly that – I'm one of those people that narrates my life in my head as I go constantly, what if, what then, what next, you know, if, if, if. You know the you know, mm. the British mantra. You know it was at at what 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 when you're doing your situation reporting and what if what mm. next mm. what then, always contingency planning, always mm. thinking about what could happen. And I find I still do it. I think about where conversations might go. I wonder if they're going to say this. What will mm. I mm. And, and I use it in business. You know what are they thinking? Mm. What am I? What's my angle? Where can I mm. get in? What are they going to say? Um, and so mm. I found that, that. I think a part of that might just be a, you know a, a part of our our own upbringing and something that I only realized later on in life, I always thought that was a great thing because it just doesn't manifest as openly bad. Wow, you deal well under pressure. Mm. You can make great rational decisions. You can deal with stress. This is awesome. And business, when I stepped out of the military, rewards it. You know, you can make the hard, logical mm. decisions. You can analyze numbers quickly. You don't get flustered. But a big part of what I realized was probably stopping me, like the, the, the more human response in a time of high stress is to feel, feel good, feel bad. Mm. Someone's dead. Mm. That hurts. Like I don't want to just be able to mm. compartmentalise and move on. So when you step out of that environment, mm. it's those things that were so rewarded and became so ingrained with me that actually helped you assimilating back into having a, a full and meaningful life. So I think there is certainly an element of mm. you become a I become a gold medalist of compartmentalising and so a theory that i'd worked through you know more recently with a counselor was about you know there, there was a bit of a history of alcoholism in my family and you know she was pointing to me in the direction of some some studies that children who are raised in that environment often become very self reliant you know if there's if there's alcohol in a family you know and, and that same sort of a child's need you know like well someone's numb i'm not getting that i learned to self validate you know, self-orientate, make your mm. own decisions. So who knows? We're all a a complex melting pot of experiences, Mm, uh, mm, upbringing, mm, personalities. mm, And I think that moral mm, side, mm, you know, that that moral compass, I I genuinely don't know. I think it comes down to I don't think anyone could assess from the outside who would do it and who wouldn't. I'm sure there are people that would have a – not have that right balance. But then it could have been one of the senior NCOs would have stepped in and gone, you know, this officer is is not going to call the shots. I need to. It could have been a gun like gunner who just says, mm. you know, I refuse to. So I don't think it was like I was mm. holding it all. If I had failed, the whole strength of the team was there were checks and balances and they were all fundamentally mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. people. My fear in those situations mm. is if no one makes the call and that, Group mentality, if everyone starts doing it, you know, if someone had started shooting, mm. holy shit, maybe that's when it all could have yeah. kicked off.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I think we've seen that very example play out in Mila, and that's a, one of those kind of uh, case studies that's uh, studied for that very point, right? Poor orders, uh, unclear guidance, difficult circumstances. As you described it, you know, uh, a pack of rabid dogs, almost ready to to kind of uh, unleash the fury of death uh, upon anyone. Um, and what you've described perfectly matches uh, that type of a scenario. Had it not been, and again, I don't intend to elevate you to some sort of a pedestal, but you and also certainly the people undoubtedly around you, because again, that is part of the interplay uh, and and the interpersonal relationships that exist. and 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 I'd imagine the. The respect that you, uh, whether consciously or non-consciously, your 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 soldiers wanted to hold you in a the high esteem that you obviously had earned, and you wanted to retain that. That, of course, has an impact. That has a. <laughs> role in shaping behavior uh you know nobody wants to slip off uh, a status that they had achieved so the status will maintain you uh, and and same same for them right they if you've elevated them and given them certain status they wouldn't want to just lose that because they're going um crazy and this is grossly oversimplifying obviously uh, but i think the the point you're trying to make echoes very very clearly in my mind that the environment and, and what you 've described as the desensitizing environment has a truly degrading effect on our humanity for lack of a better word, uh, and it takes strong strong moral a strong moral compass and strong internal motivation and validation within one's environment to sustain that uh, to remain uh, above the uh, let 's call it uh, threshold of what we consider moral ethical legal. Uh, in a war where the enemy is anyone, <laughs> you know, and I think that's a that's another really interesting important point to highlight here. That, as you stressed time and time again, anybody in those fields by day is just a farmer, but by night is a mortal enemy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's. A, I think this is a really insightful uh, piece of the conversation that I that I just want to double click on. Uh, but maybe we can pivot now to your returning back home because we've alluded to uh, we've alluded to some of the issues that you've subsequently faced. Uh, maybe you can talk us through how that occurred and 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 I guess at which point you realized that something was wrong, and then what did you find out when you put your hand up
0: yeah look, there was probably there's really two parts of it I think there's sort of I recognized in myself something wasn't quite right very soon after getting back, so I returned. Uh, you know, end of 2010, took some post-deployment leave, posted up to Townsville 2011, had a very supportive boss up there, the same CEO that had um, had come and done my sort of in-country in the UK validation and and sent me off on the deployment finally. Uh, so I can't remember exactly when in that year, but I, I started to – some of the more textbook symptoms, I guess you'd think of, never really experienced, you know, nightmares, nightmares. Um, My trauma wasn't the sort of the one distinct incident. I think it was that, you know, probably kind of typical compression, you know, the bucket filling and filling and filling and never decompressing. Uh, So I just was always at that tipping point of boiling over. So, you know, the the anger, um, you know, irritability, fatigue, just that constant. I never noticeably had trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. Uh, I never sort of woke up with nightmares or couldn't get to sleep, but I just was exhausted, which I think was a sign to me that just the the sleep wasn't working. I wasn't probably dreaming. I wasn't processing healthily. Mm. Um, And the other thing about that desensitization we spoke about is I think it just, it it drills into you that that there's no fight or flight anymore. There's just fight. And it was like I'd lost the other Mm. coping mechanisms my reactions had gone from nothing to a tipping point, and then fight. And yeah, you, know, you remember me from the mm-hmm. early days. I've always had that ability to, you know, I think controlled aggression, but sometimes becomes uncontrolled. Which, again, in the right circumstances. And, and
1: you're a big, big lad. Just, to, just for context. I mean, how tall? How tall are you? Uh, six five. <laughs> right. Okay. Just, just so people. Uh, uh, and understand uh, <laughs> that you're 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 a big lad.
0: So I think it um it, it's again it's a it's adaptive in the right environment because when you trigger you know for me at mm, least when you, yeah. that's adrenaline and you, you ignore pain and you pick someone up and throw them over your shoulder and you can achieve things but you, you try to bring that back into a mm. normal world I'd find myself you know, not but pretty cool and calm most of the time. But the wrong thing flips my switch, and I'd be shouting at a tradesman who's trying to rip me off with a quote, or you know, just absolutely oblivious, mm. shouting in the office for something. So I started thinking, um, oh, this isn't this isn't quite right. Um, but I was in a what I felt was a very supportive environment. A microcosm within the military so that was then lieutenant colonel charles weller was my co he set a very high standard uh amongst the unit he was to me that sort of uh the the amazing mix of a strong leader physically strong mentally robust caring compassionate he just balanced it so well. And to me, he was a human mm. being. Mm. He was the first commanding officer I'd seen who was human, who would say, Hey, my wife's on deployment mm. as well, so I need to go pick up my girls. You know, I was like, wow, this guy's mm. a real human being. So I think that that mm. rapport mm. and trust let me open the door. So I went and saw the GP on base who referred me through to a psychiatrist pretty quickly, you know, a military psychiatrist who pretty quickly diagnosed me with PTSD, um, got me into some therapy, got me on you know, antidepressants, just stock standard SSRIs. Um, so it wasn't – I didn't go too deep down the rabbit hole. I didn't really, you know, float with the mm. fringes of excessive drinking and it's caught it quite early and thought I'm going to get on top of this. But I, I think of that as sort mm. of recovery 1.0 where my recovery goal was – look, almost just that triage approach. Just get me good enough to mm, just… Mm,
1: mm. Just to stabilise. You know, and there, yeah. there,
0: there were a few yeah. things. I'd be walking the dog in the morning sort of, you know, pre-dawn because it's Townsville and it's stinking hot, and I'd start to – if I looked over my shoulder, I'd have the feeling that there were – rationally, I knew there was nothing behind me, but irrationally, I'd, I'd mm. feel fear. I'd feel I was being followed, pursued, and I'd sometimes mm. end up running – you know, and again, it's just that you'd convince yourself, you're like, no, I'm just jogging home. That's the only reason I'm running. But actually, mm-hmm. you're shit scared mm-hmm. for some reason. Mm-hmm. So I thought, just get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Just, just, just get rid of that, please. <laughs> um, the CEO at the time mm-hmm. moved
1: me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I was fairly open That's again about again very it rational.
1: So, sorry to interrupt you there, but this strikes me as, again, very rational compartmentalization. Again, you know, hey, just switch that off for me, please, so I can keep doing what I'm doing. Just give me whatever you need to take, you know, to, to, to numb that, uh, nullify that emotion, that feeling. Uh, to, you know, it was, again, this kind of rational approach uh, to dealing with these, uh, you know, deeply internal messages uh, that are manifesting.
0: And I wonder if partly it's because I didn't know what good looked or felt like. So, again, it was quite a rational – I'd read enough. uh, I was educated enough to go, What? I don't don't want to be one of those people that ignores PTSD and ends up, you know, a catatonic mess in 30 years' time, so I better deal with this. But dealing Mm. with it at that time for me Mm. meant, can't we just do like a quick course of meds or something and I'll go speak to a counsellor a few times, it'll be Mm. good, I'll be back on track, bang me on the next deployment. Um, You know, the inevitable stigma Mm. there in a military unit, by that stage I had the self-confidence coming off the back of that deployment you know, I just don't give a shit what what anyone thinks of me. So I was happy Mm. to talk to the gunners and say, you Mm. know, yeah, I'm I'm medically downgraded because I'm on, um, you know, because I've I've got PTSD and they put me on medication. There's idiotic things, you know, you're not allowed to carry a weapon then. So the CO moved me Mm. into a headquarters role, so it was in a way just less obvious that I wasn't carrying a weapon. Um, so you know a good supportive mm-hmm. environment for things like that but it was hard um i i the the unit then deployed because i was off kilter having you know just deployed with the british so then i came back posted to an australian unit that was deploying so i became like the stay at home dad um and then really the only offensive mm. support to the other you know the other battalions in the brigade so an incredibly busy year outfield um So really, I kind of gave it a pretty half-assed crack at recovery. Uh, I posted to School of Langs the following year. didn't like the medication, you know, combination of headaches, and I didn't like the stigma of being on medication. I didn't like having to take something. And I think once the most acute symptoms were out, out of the way, I sort of went, hey, I'm good now, like... So I posted to School of Languages in Melbourne, where there was a civilian doctor who didn't know the process too well. So instead of a very long upgrade process of weaning off the medic medication and and you know got what they called welfare boards and upgrading through the medical process, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just stopped taking the meds uh, and went to him and sort of said, "Hey, I used to take meds, but I'm good now. Can you upgrade me?" And he went, oh, "Geez, I don't even know what you're talking about, sure." So I got myself medically upgraded. Mm. Um, and then, you know, sort of fit to deploy again, essentially. And that was that was probably mm-hmm. it for, you know, that would have been 2012, 2013. Um, and that's probably about where I left it. I think I just sort of put a stopper on the worst of the the symptoms, um, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd still have these blowouts now and then, sort of, you know, these once every six months or so, real rage blowout where I'd just lose it in the gym at someone or lose it in the car at something blackout drunk was a, a pretty common go-to i say you know i was i was just mm. a binge drinker not a regular drinker in the way that only the military can say just binge drinking you know dining nights yeah, I write can. myself yeah. off weddings write myself off but i sort of said it's that's not that's not ptsd that's just me that's just what you do in the army i didn't, mm. didn't really see a problem with it because that culture is everywhere. Mm. Um, mm, mm, mm. So that was sort of the, the first go around the boy, you know, and then get married, start having kids, fast forward a few years. And I guess it was, you know, only in the last few years that I really started to want something more. And it, it's the kids that brought that to life for me that mm, I always had this mm. objective sort of, fear that i'd seen people in other relationships including my parents just just parent but not really have a relationship so i i sort of academically knew that i wanted to make sure fee and i always kept a relationship strong through kids and Mm. i wanted to be a Mm. good dad Mm. and i thought i had an image of what that looked like um but Mm. uh, you know my later years in the military and everything i started to do since it just felt like i was going through the motions of I'm doing the right things. I'm being successful. I've transitioned out of the military. I've got a good job. I keep getting promoted. Everyone tells me I'm doing the right mm. things. I have a great wife. Mm. I have kids. Mm. Why am I not content? Uh, and I just thought maybe that's mm. what life was. Mm. You know, just just always I wasn't mm. overtly depressed. I don't. I wouldn't have thought I wasn't. You know jumping every time there were cars backfiring or any of those kind of stereotypical symptoms. It was just sort of a Mm. a malaise that ran through it all. Life was a bit of a big sigh. Um,
2: Mm, And
0: so as the kids, you know, we had i have got four kids, uh, the two two oldest boys and, you know, we just had our third, you know, so now we've got two girls. And I just, I, I found myself just yearning for more. I was objectively going through the motions of what a good parent should do. I read, you know, I'm reading with the kids, dropping them to school. I'm present. I'm not working too hard. I'm setting a work life balance. I'm, I'm, I'm there for fee. I was drinking increasingly more and more, uh, but again, I just didn't see it as a problem. It's like, yeah, but I, you know, I work hard. All the lies you tell yourself. I work hard, so what? Mm. I shouldn't be allowed to have a beer. Mm. Uh, but in hindsight, I think mm. there was a fair numbing self medication going on there. Um, mm.
1: What were you numbing from? Do you know?
0: I don't really know. Again, because it wasn't like a specific memory. It wasn't, you know, recurring mm. dreams. Mm. I think it was just that process of compartmentalizing from the world. I didn't want to be a part of it. I still had that worldview, and this is mm. one of the biggest shifts for me. I, I take me back a couple of years. Ask me about the world, and I would have said to you, but the world. You know, people are like, oh, you know, you you seem a bit depressed because you seem to think the world's a bad place and everyone's out to get you. And I thought, because the world is a bad place, idiot. Like, look at it. And it's self-reinforcing. You believe mm, the world's a bad place. You believe mm, people mm, are mm, terrible. mm. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to be out with them, you know, and it just was a a self-manifesting process of you look for the worst in the world. You look Mm, for the worst mm, of people, mm. which validates my decision to, to not be amongst them. To not mm. want to join them, I don't had, mm. I didn't have a belief in humanity or the good. Even good charities, I would think, yeah, but pff, there's an angle, you know, virtue signalling,
2: mm.
0: mm. doing it to make themselves feel better, not actually helping mm. anyone. Real cynical prick, probably. Mm.
2: <laughs> um, mm. Mm. Mm.
0: But I, and I guess I was just becoming an empty vessel, uh, and I honestly, I don't know exactly what. Changed. I decided to reach out and try counselling again. So I went through Open Arms, previously VVCS. I sort of called up and I said, "Look, I'm not just not Mm. not where I want to be. I I can't put my finger on it. I just don't feel Mm. great. I don't feel happy. Uh, I don't think I use those words because I didn't Mm. talk a lot about feelings then. But it was a restlessness. Um, And I think at some Mm. subconscious level, I must have recognised that I was burning out." And I wanted it to be different for my relationship with you know, my wife, with my kids. And there was you know, my, my third mm-hmm. child, just around that tipping point of I was getting increasingly frayed. I'd gone through a few jobs, each time getting promoted, thinking maybe a bigger job will, will satisfy me. It was increasingly mm-hmm. causing mm-hmm. friction between Fee and I, because I had this security complex of I've got to earn more money not because I like money on material things, but I, the rug's going to get pulled out at mm, any minute. Mm, mm. I was convinced, you know, doomsday yeah. is coming. I need to have the mortgage paid off. I need to make sure mm. I've, my kids are going to be safe. They're going to have a place to stay no matter what happens to me. So mm. I was pushing, 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 not enjoying life along the way. Mm. We can't spend, pay down the mortgage, build security. Um, mm. So that was increasingly mm. fraying. And I found myself at one stage, you know, barbecue, idle chit chat with someone, and they say, "Oh, yeah, what do you do for fun?" And I went, "Oh shit, I don't know. I don't, I don't have fun. I don't enjoy anything. I, mm. I do things I'm supposed mm. to do. I look after my kids. I make lunches. I drop them to school. I work hard. I, I lead a team at work. I'm a good husband. You know, I, I'm faithful. I help out with mm. the chores." Mm. But they're just mm. all things. Mm. Mm. They're just mm. things I do. None of it was about what, mm. what actually makes me happy or what I want to be. Um, so I found mm. a counsellor mm. I really liked and trusted, still work with her, and I just started to build it into part of my routine just like I would gym training, You're going, you know, there's, there's this a mental element there uh, that I need to keep training. Mm. Um, and, you know, we just slowly mm. peeled back the onion, addressing some of the more superficial things first and just gradually peeling apart layers and what i loved about it it wasn't about ptsd it wasn't about the war what it was just life you know and it doesn't matter what maybe maybe mm. some of it's from your parents maybe some of it's from work maybe some of its army don't care let's just kind of mm. get to the bottom of what makes you tick mm. and then i i started to connect in really isolated Batches, you know, with these little moments of connecting to two feelings again. Uh, And I had a moment, Mm. I was camping, you know, Fee and I took the kids, we were camping down by the beach. I was laying in a swag with my daughter next to me, you know, it must be sort of two years old or something. So, sort of snuggled up next to me,
2: Mm.
0: fire next Mm. to us, Mm. just staring up at the moon and the stars and, you know, the the sort of the smell of the, the fire the smoke shimmering across, Mm. Mm. and I had this almost out-of-body experience of just going like, how lucky am I to have this little human being Mm. dependent on me Mm. here at this exact moment, in this country, in this exact space, to have the safety and the ability to do this? And looking at the stars, it sort of felt like this cosmic juxtaposition of all those stars out there, I'm here right now in this one moment, and I just, it, mm. it, it hit me in the guts, a feeling of gratitude and enormity. And I sort of thought, mm. holy crap, like, is that is that what I'm missing? And that's really where I amped mm. it up. You know, I sort of spoke to the counselor the next time and I said, holy shit, I think I just had a feeling. And I realized that it had been so long since mm. I'd felt anything because I had become so good at compartmentalizing and staying in the world of rational, logical decision making and never allowing myself to feel. But that was the good the good mm-hmm. and the bad feelings. <laughs> and that I guess that sort of kicked off the next part of the, the journey for me where I started to think more proactively of maybe there's you know, there's more here at play than I thought. Um, I think I'm okay, but am I really mm-hmm. okay? Could I be better? And to when you come mm. from an environment of being trained to be selfless, you know, trained to, to, to yeah. put others first, it took a mindset shift for me mm. to go, I actually have to invest in myself. I, I, I have to be a bit selfish and say, mm. like, yeah, it's okay to just want to do something for yourself. Um, and I remember my, my yeah. counsellor pushing me on it, saying, "Why? why this is after seeing you for a couple of years probably, why, why do you come to counselling? And I could rattle off, and I'd say, "Well, I want to be a better husband. I want to be, a, you know, a good husband. I want to be a good dad. I want mm-hmm. to look after my kids." Mm-hmm. And she said, "But why do you yeah. do it?" And she said, "You've never once said anything about yourself and what you want to do. You just want to be something for other people." And I guess it's that you, you, you know you can't give from an empty mm-hmm. cup. I had to learn that I had to look inwards first. Mm-hmm. And again, just I'm throwing around the old random analogies, but the the rising tide that lifts all ships. If I'm good, if I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I will mm. then be a better husband and better for the kids. I don't, but I was trying to focus externally. Mm, yeah. What can I fix? What can I do that will make the kids happy?
1: Mm. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, which is a. I mean, I, I think there's also uh, the part of the male nature as well. Is what can I fix? Uh, you know, just just tell me what I need to achieve. In order for you to be happy, for the kids to be happy, for everybody around me to be happy, I'll go and do it, and I will do it perfectly. So, therefore, everyone should be just happy and crack on.
0: Totally, give me the, uh, give me the, uh, give me the playbook. Hey, I've seen the yeah. movies. I re- I'm doing yeah. dishes. I fold clothes. I do ironing. I make the kids mm. lunches. I yeah. help them with their school reading. Yeah, I'm the perfect dad and husband, aren't I? Like, why aren't we all just happy? Yeah. Um, and so then yeah. that led me down yeah. the path of thinking, what, yeah. what more? What more is out there? Uh, so I started, yeah, I went back mm. and saw uh, my civilian GP and I described it and I was, I was drinking mm. too much by that stage and that became another, especially during COVID. Mm. I didn't realise how much the impediment of having to drive mm. to, to, to or from work or pick up kids or something, you know, like there were barriers to stop me drinking. Mm. I realised once those mm. barriers were out of the way, mm.
2: uh,
0: the danger, I guess, of being a pretty compulsive individual is, is I, I do everything 110%. If I'm training at the gym, mm. it's going to be 110%. Mm. But if I'm drinking, like, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to drink the most. Mm. So I was – I went from yeah. being a periodic binge drinker to a regular binge drinker to just sort of, you know, a lot of your life becomes sort of blackout drunk. A drinker, yeah. yeah. Um, not who mm. I wanted to be, but, again, I was so deep in my own head that I convinced myself it wasn't really a problem. So I, a huge part okay. of my recovery yeah. was an acknowledgement that this is – I'm not controlling this. This is a problem for me. Yeah. Um, so I went and okay. saw my GP, and we had the funniest conversation. In hindsight, where I described how I was feeling, you know, just I'm just flat, you know, at that stage, and I, you know, I say this not to, to to scare anyone, but there was a part of my brain that defaulted mm-hmm. any form of conflict, or you could just kill yourself. Um, I never, I never made plans. Mm-hmm. There was a part of me that was horrified, but there was a voice in my head that any time conflict, whether it was in the house, whether it was at work, just went, this is too hard. You could just kill yourself and this would go away. Um, And, you know, part Mm. of my mind was there and recoiled from that and went, well, what was that? But it was there every day, 100 Mm. times a day saying, just kill yourself, just it'd be so easy. So I went and described this to my GP Mm. and she Mm. said, you sound depressed. Like, have you, you know, considered taking medication? And I sort of sceptically said... (laughs) Yeah, what does that entail? You know, I'm thinking med review boards and downgrades. Mm. And she looked at me like I was an yeah. idiot and said, I write your prescription, you walk next door, get prescription, take medication. Like, end mm. of story. Mm. So I started mm. at that stage, mm, I sort mm, of mm, mm. I started on medication. It wasn't an exact linear, pro.
1: So, were you still in at this point? No. were you still in the No, only well, point? well
0: and truly out. Had no, been no, out exactly. quite a few yeah. years.
1: Well and truly. Okay, that's what that's what that's what I thought. Uh, that's that's that was my um. Uh, I just uh, I misunderstood what you meant by the the uh, med boards because well, that, that was my only experience yeah, yeah.
0: before. It was a big deal to get diagnosed with PTSD, yeah, yeah. and to yeah. I didn't realize that you know self help is sort of only a – A step away if (laughs) there's no stigma. Mm. No one knows I'm taking. Well, Mm. now lots Mm. of people know, but, you know, there's no need to tell anyone you don't want to tell that you're taking medication. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Look, I was probably one of those lucky people that SSRIs seem to work for. I know they're not great for everyone, but I I noticed Mm. a pretty immediate Mm. effect this time. Uh, I didn't put two and two together straight away, but very shortly afterwards I realised that drinking was a real problem for me um, and I made a conscious effort that Mm. I just thought I, I see the route ahead of me. And it's not one where I stay happily married and it's not one where I have a good relationship with my kids and I want that more than I want a beer. Mm-hmm. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, I, I mentioned to you before, I think in some ways I'd be a terrible sort of scientific case study because I changed a lot of variables at once. Cause I feel like most of us know the mm-hmm. recipe, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: you know, like it, it's, it's common sense, right? If you're depressed, don't pour liquid depressants on top of it. Get your, get, you know, start mm-hmm. moving, mm-hmm. do some exercise, eat well, stop drinking and your sleep will improve we know the key ingredients that'll start mm-hmm. you on the journey it's it's a discipline yeah, and i yeah, want yeah. to do it that's hard so i sort of said this mm-hmm. is if i'm going to go serious at this like i'm going to i'm going to do it so i'm going to stop drinking sort out my pt you know sort out my diet lean into counseling and really commit myself um and I had to learn to admit mm, vulnerability mm. for the first time with my counsellor, with Fee, with everyone, and just acknowledge that I did actually have a problem and I needed help to get through it. Um, and as part mm, of that mm, step, mm. I, I had been listening to podcasts and reading about alternative therapies and MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin. Mm. Um, I heard about Alex Lim's trial. Uh, wasn't initially able to connect, but then I found another GP who knew him who referred me and I... I was able to join the the ketamine trial, which was another one of those building blocks, I think, of bringing me to the journey that I'm Mm. on today.
1: Um, So you mentioned Alex Lim uh, a second ago, and for many in the audience, that name will be familiar because I've recently interviewed Alex Lim. uh, And in fact, it was post-release of that episode that uh, uh, you and I spoke, uh, and you effectively said that you were part of the trial and and praised it. Um, So... The audience that has listened to that episode now knows uh, what that treatment is from the doctor's perspective. Um, But I think people would be keen to hear what it is like from somebody who's actually in the treatment. So I'll I'll let you start where you see best, uh, but how do you describe the treatment uh, and the process that you've gone through uh, and the outcomes you're getting from it?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Look, maybe I'll start with, you know, the first conversation I had with Alex where he described to me sort of the why he was doing the program and what he was hoping to achieve and why it connected with me. And it came through in your interview with him, your podcast with him. When I met with him, he sort of said that, you know, paraphrasing, he said it far smarter, but, you know, that that he didn't like the idea that with mental injury – it was just always going to be there and all you could ever do was treat symptoms, Mm -hmm. you know, SSRI, level out. He went, you know, if we had a broken arm, you're going to set the bone. And he had that same project of sort of what's a physiological thing that is, that's happened and can I do more than just treat symptoms? And that just resonated with how I felt. I I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to be someone that for the rest of their life has to go along being impaired in some way. I want to be... Mm better than i ever was
2: mm.
0: so i was hook line and sinker and he described you know the, the things that happen in your brain with cortisol spike uh, spiking during combat exposure and then the the chemical way that you know that, that sort of the byproducts of ketamine that can sort of help repair neural activity in the brain things like that where i like, well this sounds to me like mm the Mm -hmm. next step of of really helping me go from understanding what's happened to me and actually Mm -hmm. taking a really positive step Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. fix it, not just Mm -hmm. make it Mm -hmm. less crap. Um, mm-hmm. The other key and really interesting part that he mentioned to me that I hadn't put a connection of and it might be important if other people out there are listening was he sort of described those three, the, the causal steps to having some kind of issue and obviously exposure to combat was a big one and the, the super high cortisol spiking. He then also spoke about exposure to repeated percussive blasts, so mm. being one of those things that take you from, you know, if you've seen combat experience, the likelihood of developing a substance abuse problem. He went, mm. you know, risk multiplier was percussive blast. So I went, Whoops, artillery, heavy gunfire, mm. mortars, RPGs, and then the third, and and was any family history of substance abuse or alcoholism. So when I sort of mm. told him my background, he kind of went, "Whoops, sorry, mate, but you were." I kind of would have just seen you as a profile and gone ninety-nine percent likely to develop a substance problem with something mm. Mm. in your mm. life. Mm. 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 The, the so trifecta. then I – yeah, the trifecta of doom, uh, which so mm. many other people out there would have similar experience because of the Army's drinking mm. culture, mm. you know, because mm. percussive blast was part and parcel of combat. Mm. Um, mm. But so, look, then they accepted me into the trial. There are a few preconditions. You sort of you either had to be seeing a council or be willing to see one. Um you know, you had to be free of other psychiatric conditions, uh, you know, free of other substance abuse issues. So I'd stopped drinking before this. Uh, so, that you know, I was, I was young, healthy physically, so pretty good hmm. candidate for the trial. Uh, took me a while to, you know, initiate all the usual paperwork through DVA and, and the like, but it wasn't particularly onerous. Just wait and see paperwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the trial kicked off for me with uh, an onboarding process, which was a sort of two-week uh, ketamine infusion every second day. And in mm-hmm. all honesty, I sort of I, I used that time doing my own reading about psychedelic treatments. Uh, I read a fantastic book by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, uh, and, mm-hmm. and you know, listened to some podcasts in different places. But I still didn't really have a conceptual understanding of what the process would be like. You know, I knew mm. that ketamine was a, 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 a disassociative anaesthetic in, in high mm. doses. Um, the idea that it was, it's administered in a hospital setting, I, th- I sort of had an idea of, you know, it'd be quite sterile and, mm. you know, I didn't really un- believe the hallucination part of it. I've never experienced anything like that. It's pretty typical mm. when mm. you join mm. the Army at 18, you live a very mm. straighty mm. 180, where, you know, yeah. alcohol is a drug of choice. Uh, So this two-week onboarding process was designed to test your sort of tolerance, you know, size, weight, everything to ketamine. So you start at quite a low dose. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. The infusion process, you know, you show up to the hospital at about 5.30 in the morning on the day of your infusion, uh, noise-canceling headphones, eye mask recommended, and they hook you up to a, you know, cannula IV administered ketamine on a fasted state. So it hits you like a, like a freight train, mm. Um, mm. the low doses initially uh, were quite, you know, I was still fairly lucid, um, but I started even at the very low doses to experience sort of honestly what I felt was a stereotypical trip that I would. Mm-hmm. If you watch mm. a a movie where someone's tripping, it's pretty accurate.
2: Mm. I, mm. I was mm. seeing, mm.
0: you know, colours, colours, uh, and then basically every second day they ramped up the dose to try to find mm-hmm. a, a really happy blend where you're uh, – it felt to me like you disassociated enough to be able to access your subconscious but you're not mm-hmm. unconscious mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. to confirm mm-hmm. that you weren't having any negative side effects from it and, you know, you, those types of sort of safety controls.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: over that period, I it was – even those initial experiences were, were life-changing for me. Um, it started out with almost just curiosities of uh, experiencing synesthesia so where I could see, you know, all the – I could see sounds and, and, and music would have colours to it. So I would have the sort mm-hmm. of – I'd be listening to music and it would feel so profound to me that I'd be, this song is blue, <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or, Um mm-hmm.
0: But in almost every one of the this infusions, I would come away with some really a feeling of profound realisation about something. Mm, and it, mm. it feels like a they've, they've all felt like lucid dreams to me mm. where I gradually uh, increase the dose of that, that period of disassociation where you are out of body, And Mm. you're almost an observer of the goings-on of your own thoughts, but Mm -hmm. still with enough of yourself there to be able to steer and self-direct. So I often go into the infusions with an idea of something I want to explore, a relationship, Mm. a a past something. Um, But, you know, reflections on the importance of, you know, a a strong parental figure to my children, the feeling Mm. of care and protection, protection. and I'd read about psychedelic experiences where, it, when it's happening to you, it, it feels so profound that you just know it to be true. But mm-hmm. I never experienced that. Mm-hmm. And it really did it. If I zoom out, what it felt like for me was uh, I'd, I'd heard it described that over time in our brains we develop, uh, as entropy increases, we sort of we wear these grooves of the path most trodden in our thought processes, mm-hmm. and as humans mm-hmm. we all do it. We hear hear a car and we go, it's it's a car, you know, Mm, mm because it's almost always a car. Mm. But that can become debilitating when those grooves become too well-trodden and depressive and you go, you know what, it's going to be a crap day. And then that reinforces Mm. because you Mm. have a crap day. It felt like the shaking of the snow globe I had it described as. Mm. where you sort of just, th- that experience just activated the, the neural pathways and my mind was alive. And it felt like the, that disassociative effect just allowed me to tap into my subconscious that I had been busy suppressing since probably before mm. Afghanistan. And mm. then certainly mm. I just banged a stopper on it in Afghanistan. Mm. And it felt like my brain could just go through and slowly sift out memories, put them at the middle of this electric slow, snow globe. Mm. and explore them with almost a child's curiosity, not constrained mm. by a single sense. It was, it was engaging all the senses to pick apart memories, to draw connections, and it felt like a gradual process of pull that out, that memory, that something that I had suppressed, examine it, pull it apart, and mm. then file it. Probably what mm. I should have been doing through a healthy dreaming process yeah. but just a 20-year bottleneck, Mm. and and I was walking away making profound connections about the meaning of life, birth and death. I experienced all those feelings of Mm. myself dying and then being reborn, but in a way that was in no way scary. I sort of went into Mm. it in a trusting environment. This is being administered to me in a hospital setting by a trained anaesthetist. I'm connected mm. to ECGs and heart rate monitors. So it, that sterility of the environment also provided me the, that backdrop of safety.
2: Mm. And that, that, you know,
0: there was one particular experience where I did think, like, I, I, I basically, I think what was happening was I was disassociating enough to the sense that I couldn't feel my body anymore, so I didn't know if I was breathing. Mm. And a part mm. of my brain kind of went, maybe you're not breathing. Maybe you're dead. <laughs> Mm. And there was enough consciousness there to go, but you're not, because there's an anesthetist mm. and an ECG mm. and a mm. heart rate monitor, so you're not dead. Mm. So this just must be part of something your brain's exploring, and mm. I, and then that 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 hallucination continued where I felt myself die, be buried, reborn, and sort of again the the takeaway was just about that enormity of of the world and how small mm. we really are in it, and mm. that that profound feeling that the only thing that really matters is what we do in the moment, you know, be good, mm. be good to the people around us, be happy, be loving, be caring. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, the two-week onboarding process was was phenomenal and then I rolled into monthly treatments. So I still go back mm. monthly and have sort of a booster Um, Mm -hmm. And they're in that stage of the trial now. They've run multiple intakes, and obviously some people, depending on the severity of their symptoms, are more regular. Some are further apart.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And and I I believe what they're trying to do is find that right, that dosage of the frequency. Is there a time when you repair and recover enough that you wean off the doses? Is this something that becomes Mm -hmm. an ongoing treatment? If so, are there any negative side effects? How often do people need it? And obviously, people at different stages of their own recovery yeah. journeys. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's been a fantastic process to be part of.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds absolutely amazing. And the insights that you're describing are just uh, profound as far as connecting one to the present and to what, as you describe it, is important there and then. It's that moment that you'd really so vividly describe with your daughter, uh, you know, lying down, camping with the fire and the stars. Uh, you know, as you were talking, I could see that, you know, the, the, the importance and the value of those kinds of moments uh, and that you get to, uh, in this state, uh, explore them and, and unpack them uh, uh, and recognize their value, I guess, uh, and contrast that with some of those other moments. And I'd imagine that a lot of it is probably not even conscious, as you rightly, uh, rightly um, described. It kind of just happens and the journey takes you. Uh, wherever it takes you, right? Um, but given everything you've talked about, uh, ketamine and its success, at least for you, why do you think it's still considered controversial?
0: I think it's the, um, you know, I suspect partly it's just a long legacy and the unfamiliarity with psychedelic treatments, mm. and you know that that feeling that it's it's back alley, it's a you know it's a party mm. drug or, or something like that. I found that having, you know, I was sort of separated from the military probably seven years or so by the time I went into this experience, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so I was, I went into it really open minded, going, I want to see where this takes me. I want to get everything I can out of it. So when they recommend you to wear wear an eye mask and noise cancelling headphones and have some relaxing music, I went all in. Mm -hmm. Others that I saw on the trial who were more recently military or perhaps still in, I'm not sure. Seem to have that uh, more stoic, you know, Mm. like I'm in the army. I don't do do drugs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So give
0: me medicine. Give me the medicine and I'll lay here and I don't Mm. need all that hippie crap. Just give me the Mm. medicine. It'll fix me. Mm. So I think it's that element of this feels different. It's unusual for people to hallucinate. That's something that hippies do. That's not Mm. something that you do Mm. in a medicinal process. Mm. So I've personally found that surrendering completely to the process has been a huge part of why i think it's been so successful mm. for me mm. and i do hear anecdotes of other people when you're in the waiting room and some people say oh i didn't yeah. i didn't feel anything i just felt mm. a bit woozy how yeah. to sleep so there's mm. certainly you know experiences may differ yeah. Um, yeah and so that's all i can think of it's just a a prejudice against something that may be considered, or you know, once was a party Hi. drug, or if, it feels like honestly, yeah. it feels too good to be a medicine,
1: yeah, <laughs> um, mm, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes sense. And I mean, and I guess that's perhaps part of the stigma. Um, and it, it's a and it's, a, I think it's important to stress that point you said, you know, it's a, it's not necessarily going, it's not the silver bullet, and it's not necessarily going to work for everyone the same way uh, that it's working for you again, because we all come, come into this with our own personal histories, right? Uh, just like you know. Trauma, uh, or how trauma might eventuate, we bring our histories into play with that environment. Same here, right? Your personal history uh, is interplaying with now this environment, uh, and this environment that is, uh, yeah, uh, uh, extreme in a different way, right? It's uh, disassociating you from your body. Um, so I guess and it felt uh, to me like, stepping yeah. stones.
0: You know, on that on that mm. sort of hierarchy of recovery, I viewed it as stepping stones. Where I go, well, you know what? I, I'm taking. I'm not drinking. I've sort mm-hmm. of forced that balance on myself, take medication, get better sleep, communicate more with a counsellor. And then I went into this almost in a – it was always going to be win-win for me as long as it didn't do mm-hmm. something terrible to me because I thought, I don't mm-hmm. I don't need this to do anything. I'm already on a good journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I really mm-hmm. hope it helps. And that part – that, but, you know, I fear that people, if they put too much expectation on it, if they expect it to be the panacea, mm-hmm. the silver bullet – if you're not going to address your other issues and you're not going to get your health into line and stop your drinking mm. or do whatever else is that you're doing that's destructive, this isn't going to fix you. Um, mm. It's like anything. If and you I guess that's why you need a counsellor, right? Move, yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Someone to unpack yeah. with afterwards. So I, I go and I talk mm. about these things. I like, go, I wonder why that came to me. Uh, I mm. wonder what the meaning of that was. Um, you know, that for me, it's the largest change has been that feeling of connection. That I mentioned mm. to you before, I, I used to think the world is a bad place, uh, you know, and I was self validated because you'd look at all the bad in the world. I find mm. now that it's it's a feeling of hope and a feeling of, you know, sort of more the, the rose colored glass of view. Well, yeah, you know, I'm not naive. Bad things happen in the world every day, mm. but I have that belief that it can be better, and I want to be mm. part of making it better for my kids, for the world. Where I, I used to want to hide away from society. I now find myself thinking, you know, I, I enjoy, still an introvert, but I enjoy mm. looking for the best in the world and, and hoping mm. that I can do mm. something that that makes it a better place.
1: Yeah. And how, is it, how has it impacted your relationship uh, with Fee uh, and your kids ultimately since you've been on the treatment?
0: I, uh, so the, the feedback from Fee, firstly, is that I sleep far more deeply and I snore now, which she's not stoked about. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I am just a another thing to result. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that'll be the next casualty. Um, I'm a happy person now. I can put my mm-hmm. hand on my heart when people ask me and say, "How are you doing?" You know, I don't have to say, "Oh, yeah, good, busy." I say, "You know what? If there was a word, I'd be content and happy." So it's mm-hmm. like the restless energy of constantly needing to fight to get somewhere, to do something, to achieve something, mm-hmm. like you mentioned those goals. Give me a listen, mm. I'll do it. I'm happy just being, and so that means I am I can sit and be still with the kids and just appreciate being there. With mm. Fee, it means we can sit and talk and just be in the moment with her and, and be happy. I, I laugh spontaneously mm. now where I never used to know mm. what that was like. So from mm. her reflection, it's I'm just a happier, more content person, which means I'm better to be around, which means... You know, the, the stress levels, that 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 almost aura of anxiety in the house when someone is stressed and on edge has just gradually mm. started to wind down and it doesn't happen overnight. But mm. it means the kids pick up off your nervous energy yeah. and your stress and your anxiety and feed us the same and we you bounce up off each other. But now yeah. we're all just slowly winding the, the anxiety and the stress down in the house and everyone just – loving life a lot more
1: yeah it benefits everyone well i guess it's not that's that's what you said before right it's the uh, it's the it's the boats rising equally right if you if you're well you're going to lift to the people around you uh, and that's ultimately what it comes down to um rob i know we're uh, we're coming up uh, towards the two hour mark uh, <laughs> we've uh, covered a lot of ground Um, But I do want to offer you the opportunity, in case we haven't touched on something that you uh, that you want to share or cover uh, that I haven't asked about. So uh, yeah, by all means.
0: Look, you know, I guess maybe just two little things in closing. One would be if anyone out there is listening, you know, I guess the the message would be, don't be afraid to want to get better and to get good. Mm. You know, I think there is that military stoicism of if it's, you know, you stop it just long enough to stop the bleeding when you're injured and, mm. and you get back in the game, don't be afraid to want more and don't be afraid to seek out the help to to actually want to be happy and mm. don't be afraid to put yourself first and say, I do want to be content, I want to be a happy person, I don't just want to be okay. Um, mm. So for anyone mm. out there, I'd recommend the, the program to... You know, it's DVA endorsed and sponsored. It is all above board and legitimate. There's nothing funky Mm. about it. Mm. And Mm. then Mm. I just reflecting about something I said about the guys that I was with, uh, calling them rabid dogs, I hope no one takes offence to that. I mean it with love.
1: No, of course. And I think uh,
0: sometimes that people – I think people view it almost as offensive to say that our soldiers – that go through those experiences are on that cusp Mm. of all having that ability to to turn rogue. Mm. And Mm. I think Mm. it is – I don't say that to diminish them at all. Mm. I think the absolute counterpoint of that, which is that it speaks to the strength and the testament of those men that there is that inner human Mm. frailty within all of us but they mm. had the strength and the training and the discipline not to act on it. Mm. And I mm. think that goes mm. for all soldiers. It's We are all human. We are all feel, we do all feel hurt. We do all suffer. And I think it's mm. it's naive of us to pretend that anyone is immune to it. And mm. instead of saying that as a bad thing, I just think it's a, an amazing wonder of their training and their discipline and their, their culture and their upbringing and everything that makes them them, mm. that they mm. carry themselves mm. out in such an amazing way. And I'll just be forever grateful to have had the opportunity to serve with them. Um, mm. And it's just, you know, that'll always be for all of us. I think just a turning point in our lives, as it is for so many mm. that go through something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to double click on the, the, the importance of that environment and the circumstances, right? I mean, it's a, and this is one of those points that I'm, that I've picked up on the pod a number of times about uh, those who've allegedly transgressed. Uh, we've also been very, or not, not all of us, but some have been very quick to discard them uh, as the few bad apples, you know, who are, uh, who've dishonored our service or our nation. Uh and it's very easy to say that, uh, but without understanding the context, as you described so eloquently about the desensitization and the interplay with the environment, uh, if we do throw them out in that manner, uh, as I often say on the podcast, we denied them the very humanity, we accused them of denying uh their victims. Uh and I think that's absolutely the point you're making. You know, to, to, to somehow think that we are immune to this, that anyone is immune to this, uh, is uh is naive and uh, and absolutely, absolutely rejects the reality of one's lived experience under those circumstances. Um, and, yeah, and you so, fail.
0: You da- you, would, you dangerously fail to diagnose the real problem if you blame mm, it on a few mm, bad people and think the problem is them mm, and mm, everyone mm. else is okay. We <laughs> fail to diagnose the fact that what, what did we do to them that could have happened yep. to all of us, and therefore how can we prevent this happening exactly. again?
1: Absolutely. I mean I've I say it time and time again, I mean, no one is born a war criminal. Um, you know, and that's uh that's just a fact of life. Yes, there are those who are psychologically more prone because they have certain uh genetic predispositions, combinations of their personality that are more prone to uh, you know, call them psychopaths or whatever, the two or three percent of the society, sure. But hopefully our psychological testing filters out uh most, if not all of those throughout kind of enlistment process uh, and then the rest is up to you know <laughs> the upstream causes to ultimately lead down those uh, those acts uh, but that's a uh, that's perhaps a, a, a another topic for another time as well um, given uh, given how uh, much of your time i've taken uh, but i do want to say i'm absolutely uh, humbled by your ability to be open vulnerable and to share something that's uh, so deeply personal and to do it in such a way that i think resonates and connects uh, to the audience because it is very personable and it's real, uh, and and I really want to thank you for removing the bullshit out of it, right? By speaking truthfully about your experiences, humbly where necessary, uh, but also ruthlessly and honestly uh, where appropriate. Uh, so um, yeah, I have no doubt that this uh, episode uh, will uh, will land well with the audience, uh, and I certainly hope uh, and echo everything you've uh, said about anybody. Feeling like they are trapped in their own circumstances, uh, there are ways and means out there to reach out uh, and look for help. Uh, but on that note, mate, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, uh, as dark as it's gone uh, in certain places, but uh, also landed on a very, very optimistic note. So thanks a lot.
0: Thank you, Maz. Um, thank you for inviting us on. It's been an awesome
1: conversation. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.